From the historic triangle of Hampton Roads, Virginia, this is the Past is Prologue podcast. I'm Andrew Falk. The Bureau of Tourism here tells us Virginia is for lovers, and that marketing slogan is certainly true for lovers of history. There are probably more historic sites, battlefields, presidential homes, archaeological digs, monuments, museums, and memorials than anywhere else in America. And that's especially true here in southeastern Virginia. They don't call this the historic triangle for nothing. Some sites, like Jamestown Settlement, Colonial Williamsburg, and Yorktown Battlefield are meant to engage, educate, and instill American values. And if you consider the nearby beaches and state parks, you can see why it's a major tourist destination. Even at Bush Gardens, you can visit a version of Europe and immerse yourself in the culture of German bumper cars, French roller coasters, and shop in Italy's Marco Polo's Marketplace. Accurate? I don't know. Entertaining? You bet. You don't even need a passport. As the school year reaches its end and as the weather warms up around here, you may be thinking about summer vacation. Surveys show that over 70% of Americans will take a trip this summer. Many will head to the beach, some will board a cruise ship, others will head out on a road trip and hike around a national park. Several will trek to a city or a theme park, a few are jetting overseas, and due to higher prices and inflation, some will plan a staycation closer to home. No matter what it looks like, it seems that vacation is all we ever wanted, We just have to get away. What happens when we head out on the highway looking for adventure? Or when we explore the wider world this summer? And what baggage do we carry when we encounter other people and places? What do you think as you scroll through social media and see friends' vacation photos? Let history be your guide because there's a history to our summer vacations just as there's a history to everything. While daydreaming about summer vacation, I started to think a bit more about the purpose of leisure time, the ways we travel, and how tourism affects us and those we meet on our journeys. So I asked historian Matt Harshman, who studies the history of American tourism here at Christopher Newport. So let's buckle up and start, as we often do, by jumping into the historical sources for a glimpse of the past. Just like Jamestown and Williamsburg, many places in our histories end up becoming tourist sites. Take the new town of New Salem, Illinois, for example. If you haven't heard of it, I don't blame you. It was a village of less than 100 people that existed barely 10 years, from about 1829 to about 1840. And yet today, your GPS will take you right to it. Why? Well, it probably has to do with the fact that this small village was where Abraham Lincoln made his home decades before the American Civil War. He lived in New Salem between 1831 and 1837, when he was in his 20s as a young shopkeeper, lawyer, and politician. Only about two dozen families lived in this village at its height. By 1840s, residents had mostly migrated elsewhere, but the site remains, sort of. Today, you can visit a reconstructed New Salem in the same way you can visit historical reconstructions in Virginia in places like Jamestown or Colonial Williamsburg. But unlike these settlements, the town of New Salem isn't particularly known for its place in American history. So why has it been a tourist destination in Illinois for more than a century? 
Well, it began as a local museum about Lincoln himself. The state of Illinois acquired the land in 1919 and opened the museum in May of 1921, likely as a way to both encourage consumer travel to the nearby towns and to build on Illinois' relationship to a popular president. There are license plates do say the land of Lincoln after all. But when the Great Depression hit in the 1930s, museums and sites like these took on a new meaning. They became a way for Americans worried about their country and their future to connect with the nation's history and its often idealized past, including Lincoln himself. Places like New Salem also acted as sources for job opportunities. The reconstruction of the former village is a 23-building complex with log cabins, stores, mills, taverns, even a school. All this was constructed by hundreds of young men who found work with the Civilian Conservation Corps, a federal program designed to provide struggling folks with jobs during the worst years of the Depression. By the time Americans were taking to the road en masse in the 1950s and 60s, New Salem was well established as a tourist draw, a way to go back in time and to connect with history. But this is what I think makes the intersection of tourism and history so interesting. The original village was one of a hundred like it that were abandoned in the late 19th century as many Americans started moving into bigger cities. Had it not been for its famous former resident, who was only there for six years, the place would have been quietly forgotten. In bringing the town back from the dead, so to speak, we've rewritten its history. It's literally advertised today as the place where Lincoln went from a gangling youngster to a man of purpose as he embarked on a career of law and statesmanship, even though Lincoln was 22 when he got there and already involved in politics. We've made this former little village into a place where we try to cross literal paths with one of the most famous figures in American history, even though the 1830s village as you walk through was built in the 1930s. We can interact with historical reenactors, but we're also often aware that these are actors, often volunteers, who are bringing their own understandings and interpretations to the experience. We come hoping to experience an authentic experience of life in America in the 1830s, but we also want to see a romanticized idea of that past, one that can be nostalgic for, one that seems different from the seemingly more hectic modern life 200 years later. Not only does this Illinois village have its own history, therefore, but its very relationship to American tourism has created an entirely different, but equally interesting, history all its own. Well, thanks, Matt, and welcome to the podcast. Uh, it seems there are layers of history at New Salem, as you describe it, and when you get there, there are many um, there's there, meaning there's the real Lincoln, the imagined Lincoln, and the economic and commercial reason for the town's existence. I, I guess... Um, what I'm saying is that it sounds like tourism is a lot more than just sipping fruity drinks and with little umbrellas, isn't it? Um, how have we decided what destinations are worthy of touring and, and which ones are maybe a little remote and eh, okay to skip? So that's a surprisingly complicated question. I mean, the short answer is that really anything and everything can be a tourist destination. For example, I've driven to a private home in the middle of a cornfield in Indiana to paint a coat on the world's largest ball of paint, and I've done that twice. Oh, you're quite the thrill seeker there, Matt. <laughs> yeah, well, we millions might travel to the Louvre or, or Times Square every year, but there are also millions of tourists that are seeking out destinations because they're remote or ignored. In fact, once you start to look closely, both the term tourism and tourist become surprisingly complicated. Traveling to an island resort, visiting a Civil War battlefield, spending a few weeks traipsing around Johannesburg or Jakarta, exploring the museums in Washington, D.C., climbing Mount Everest, seeing a Baltimore Ravens home game, mm -hmm. stopping by a gravesite on the side of the road, these are all forms of tourism, each with their own histories. And it's a pretty wide variety of activities that you've listed there. I 
I can see how we're attracted by a sense of um, discovery, going off the beaten path, as they say. Does history help us define what a tourist is? Or, or let me put it this way. When did tourism begin? Well, so you use the term tourist, and that's not really an easy term to pin down either, right? We might be enticed to label the young European men of the 1600s and the 1700s going around Europe taking the so-called grand tour as the origin of the tourist. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you want to call tourists the more affordable guided tours of Britain and the US, those who went on these trips in the mid-1800s as an early form of mass tourism. But then again, human beings have been curious about the cultures and people around them pretty much as far back as history goes. Heck, you could even say that the ancient Grecian Herodotus, one of the very founders of the historical discipline itself, was himself a tourist, <laughs> traveling to cities, traveling to towns outside of ancient Greece, recording his experiences, his observations, and then, you know, coming back and sharing them at home. If I recall correctly, Herodotus wasn't on vacation. He was, he was on the job. I mean, he may have had an expense account, but he was still on the job, right? Well, that's true, but I think that that actually issues part of what makes tourism interesting. Tourism can often happen alongside other activities. For example, this is what Christopher Columbus wrote in a letter in 1493 from what he called then the Indian Isles. Listen to it and it's filled with the same sort of descriptive imagery we'd expect in a postcard or a blog post or an Instagram caption. Here's Columbus in his own words. All these islands are very beautiful. The trees are as green and lovely as they are wont to be in the month of May in Spain. The nightingale is singing all when I was rambling among them. Now see, of course, the main purpose of this letter was to indicate how the Spanish Empire could exploit labor and extract wealth, but the letter was reprinted back in Europe multiple times. It often served as a travelogue to European readers, enticing people to go there themselves and indicating what they were likely to find when they got there. It also suggested that the region could be intimately understood by Europeans in really a, just a few weeks and with minimal engagement with the local populations. In a way, I suppose, you could say that the European invasion of the so-called New World began by framing the region as a tourable destination. Oh, that's interesting. So historically, it seems that travel and tourism has sometimes blended with, uh, in that case, a national mission. But, of course, a lot of us go on holiday for summer vacation as a form of leisure to escape and uh, recharge our batteries and to encounter some new experiences. And when did that form of mass travel take off in America? Okay, so these days we typically define tourism as, you know, travel taken for pleasure to places we think we would find pleasure in going to, right? We also tend to think of it as uh, pretty unconnected from the rest of our lives, especially our work lives. In fact, the idea that tourism is purely leisure, something separate from the rest of our daily existence, is really something I take a little bit of issue with. For one thing, leisure, or time off, or however you want to put it, in the way that we think of it, is a relatively modern invention. It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that we started clearly delineating work hours from non-work hours. Mm. In fact, the demand for that separation was one of the chief rallying cries from the industrial workers themselves. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. That here, was, here. Yeah, that was the rallying cry. But of course, leisure is more complicated than that. I mean, for most of us, the line between going on and off the clock has gotten pretty fuzzy. On top of that, what you do with your time off, as it were, has historically been pretty limited by a number of factors. Your economic class, your gender, your nationality, your education, your health, all key parts of your non-leisure life. And 
So it seems that travel offers an escape uh, to some extent, but you're suggesting that we really can't escape everything, that the history of travel and tourism has this uh, serious side to it, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, even historians are guilty of often not being serious about our leisure time. We tend to view other forms of travel, for instance, as important and significant. Troop deployments, business ventures, missionary travel, that sort of thing. But we don't always tend to view tourism or tourist travel in the same way. And that prevents us from taking it seriously. The reality is that tourism is often an integral part of imperial expansions, of national narratives, even the very way we interact with the world around us. That's an interesting point. Maybe I mean, we might be veering a little into psychology and sociology. Um, nothing wrong with that. But it, it seems like you're suggesting that when we travel, we carry a lot of baggage. And I don't mean suitcases and carry-ons. Um, we also carry the baggage of being an American mm-hmm. um, or a soldier or a middle-class suburbanite, a black woman, a retiree, or what have you. When we travel, we carry those perspectives, it sounds like you're saying, and there's a lot to, uh, to continue the uh, analogy to unpack there. Oh, yeah, absolutely, and, and that's not even the half of it. I mean, not only do we carry with us these aspects of our own identities, but we tend to project those identities and expectations as well. I mean, let me give you an example. If I gave you free tickets to Paris. Yes, please. <laughs> okay, so these are theoretical tickets. But if I gave you tickets to Paris, even if you've never been to France before, you'd have certain expectations of what to see, right? What mm-hmm. the French people might be like, what are considered the tourist traps versus the hidden gems of the city. Now, those expectations might come from film, from music, from literature, from social media posts of friends and family who'd gone to Paris before. The point is, before you even step foot on French soil, you'd already have what has been called the tourist gaze, a sort of checklist of what would be considered authentic French places and experiences that might really have little to do with what Paris or the French people are actually like on a day-to-day basis. Mm -hmm. Couples kissing underneath the Eiffel Tower, very French, maximum French. (laughs) A construction worker from Senegal on his way to work, not very French at all, even though African immigrants are a significant part of the Parisian working class. Like the rest of us, your vacation expectations would reinforce what you saw as quote-unquote authentic Paris. And what you chose to focus on while both there and afterward might color how your friends and family saw Paris and France themselves. That's a good point. I'll probably be more conscious of friends carefully curating their vacation (laughs) photos on Instagram now. Um, You know, I'm reminded, actually, based on what you said, of these stylized travel posters that I've seen Mm -hmm. from travel agents and also old postcards, those are primary sources, uh, you'll agree, mm-hmm. uh, and they must have helped frame sites for tourists. Um, you're suggesting that w- we have expectations before we travel, and then everything we observe, I guess, is in relation to those expectations. They kind of fit or they don't fit. Mm-hmm. Can you think of something in history that could illustrate that? Oh, absolutely. This is this is absolutely, we see something repeated often throughout history. I mean, For example, uh, during the Spanish-American War of 1898, uh, easy and affordable photography uh, allowed middle and upper-class white women to tour U.S. naval vessels and photograph the ships and soldiers before they embarked for Cuba and the Philippines. These photos showed up in magazines and newspaper articles everywhere. And they were of clean and modern ships, of smiling officers and enlisted men in crisp, clean uniforms. And this became kind of the way many Americans saw the war itself a gentleman's war, neat and orderly and modern. I mean, it was even called a splendid little war at the time. Mm -hmm. 
rather than, of course, the messy, chaotic violence that is the grim reality of all wars. Mm, that's interesting. Aside from framing the way Americans viewed events, I just based on what you said right there, it, to me it's noteworthy that these were women who were encountering a so-called man's world mm -hmm. of, of war because, of course, relatively fewer women at that time participated in overseas activities at all, much less as soldiers or, um, or entrepreneurs or diplomats. So it causes me to wonder, does history tell us anything about how men and women have encountered travel and tourism in different ways? Oh, sure. And, and that's a really great question. I mean, as I said earlier, the subject of tourism often gets kind of cast aside in favor of, you know, more quote-unquote serious forms of travel. But it's in touristic travel that we often find members of the American community that are being marginalized in their time. I mean, heck, even if you couldn't make the trip yourself, the idea of tourism could be powerful enough in its own right. Mm -hmm. For example, many early 20th century middle-class American women formed travel clubs. These were groups, both big and small, that really, in a sense, toured the world through reading books. I mean, think of it as a very active modern book club. They dress in what was to be considered, quote unquote, authentic fashion. They cooked a version of foreign cuisine. They looked at easily affordable travel photographs and often even purchased what they considered to be authentic pieces of foreign art, of foreign furniture, of various pieces of home decor. Well, let me pick up on something you said. You said that tourism could be empowering in some ways to sure. women. It sounds like those women thought travel and tourism was important then, significant at some level, and they felt more uh, sophisticated or worldly even through a virtual form of travel. It seems that they were consuming the world, um, in a matter of speaking, um, when they ate chop suey and fortune cookies, mm -hmm. even if those dishes weren't really authentic um, Chinese. In other words, I can imagine these groups ran into a number of problems in terms of getting an accurate picture of the outside world, right? Oh, absolutely. And frankly, that brings us back to the sort of Paris problem we were talking about earlier. I mean, by relying primarily on secondhand information, these travel clubs were themselves kind of a double-edged sword. Of course, tourism, armchair tourism or otherwise, can open up new worlds and new ways of life to us, but we can also fall victim to some of its pitfalls. Not only do we run the risk of simply reinforcing what we've already come to expect from a place or people, and that, of course, can be especially dangerous if we're coming in with certain prejudices, mm -hmm. but we can also fall into the trap of feeling superior to these people. We kind of risk viewing other people and places as exotic, I guess, and the American way of life is more normal, so to speak? Sure, sure, yeah. And, and you know, in fact, at around some of the same time of these travel clubs, right, thousands of other American tourists were literally traveling to Latin America and to the Caribbean. Uh, their photographs, their travel logs, their guidebooks often framed these places as quote-unquote uncivilized, right? Bouncing between breathless descriptions of architectural wonders and agricultural promise on one hand, and then these really gross, lurid, racially charged descriptions of its people, especially poor indigenous women. I mean, think about the indigenous women of Hawaii, for example, stereotyped as wearing leis, playing a ukulele, dancing the hula and grass skirts. Mm -hmm. Not only is a lot of this a pretty inaccurate portrayal of indigenous Hawaiians, much as it, it isn't even from Hawaii. <laughs> The whole tiki bar vibe originated as one way to advertise a bar in Hollywood back in the 1930s. 
And it is a style that became so popular that American tourists came to expect this sort of atmosphere when they traveled to the islands themselves. Of course, hotels on these islands played into that sort of, of idea to attract business. And frankly, it's really just been in the last decade or so that we've seen Hawaiian resorts begin to move away from that really outdated false narrative, narrative and, and begin to highlight sort of actual indigenous practices. Mm. And that's kind of why all of this matters, right? It's, it's not hard to see how these depictions might encourage Americans back home to see these places, to see these people as simplistic, or lazy, or racially or culturally primitive or savage, and of course, therefore ripe for occupation, for reform, for exploitation. I mean, the unfortunate truth is that touristic travel, despite often being framed as harmless fun, sometimes has its own dark side. Well, Matt, I, I want to shift gears a little here, you know, like you know, shifting gears on a car <laughs> and talk about domestic tourism within the continental United States. You know, one classic memory for many of us growing up was the family vacation by automobile. Sure. Certainly National Lampoon and The Simpsons have spoofed this. Are we there yet? No. 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 What do you think about that? I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, family road trips have always been a great source of drama, right? Both in fiction and in real life. Uh, frankly, Sinclair Lewis, the first American to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, was writing car road trip stories like Free Air in 1919, uh, which itself became a movie back in 1922. Uh, for me personally, the 1995 Goofy movie is, is a classic, and if you haven't watched 2021's uh, Mitchells vs. the Machines, I, I definitely recommend it as one of those, those car trip movies. Get your kicks. Well, it's been said that Americans have a love affair with the automobile and we get our kicks out on the open road. Uh, can history help us look at those road trips in a new way? I mean, I know that AAA started early in the 20th century and helped Americans navigate their way before GPS. How have the family car trips helped transform America? <laughs> So you might think the history of America's fascination with road trip tourism would start with the automobile, but you know, frankly, we can go back much further than that. For example, one of the first things that President George Washington did after his inauguration in 1789 was to take a series of road trips out into the nation to get a sense of the places and people he was representing. Washington championed the construction of a national turnpike and canals, the growing number of merchants and soldiers and other long-distance travelers really encouraged the American overnight lodging industry following his and many other Americans' trips like it. By the mid-1800s, frankly, roadside inns were joined not only by a massive urban hotel like those you might see in, in the Exchange Coffee House in Boston, which was then the tallest building in the city when it was built in 1809, mm -hmm but also dozens of hot spring resorts from upstate New York to the Omni Homestead Resort in Hot Springs, Virginia. A lot of these places were of course pretty exclusive to a white and upper class American elite looking to get out of, of increasingly cramped and polluted cities. Yeah, I see that this is an early American form, I guess, of travel for health. Uh, the Europeans, of course, they had been using an expansive road system to access the Roman baths and spas and mineral springs for centuries. Um, today, you know, perhaps the same motivation supports the popularity of the national park campsites, which is related to that idea that the destination is meant to you know, serve some way of 
replenishing the soul and the spirit in the modern, you know, an escape from the modern oh, sure. industrial world. Um, you had mentioned inns and lodging. What about those? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, as the railroad and, and river travel spread across this industrializing nation, so too did the availability of more affordable lodging. And then on top of that, you know, train and, and boat travel really encouraged riders to literally see the sights of the country as they passed, frankly, training future generations of board car passengers. So transportation and lodging really do go hand in hand. Uh, to what extent did the popularity of the car change all that? Well, in some ways, it's, it's kind of the other way around. Huh. One of the big ways early auto companies were able to sell their product, their product being the automobile, to American consumers was to highlight the ways owning a car could expand one's travel experiences. Mm -hmm. They argued that cars allowed for a much more individualized freedom. Not only could you have greater flexibility in choosing your own route somewhere, but now you could stop, get out, look around if you were so inclined. By World War I, the relationship between domestic tourism and the automobile was so strong that one of the main ways boosters sold the American people on the nation's first intercontinental highway, that of course is the Lincoln Highway dedicated in 1913, was to point out that car tourism was, to quote them, incomparable, an incomparable inspirational course on Americanism, hmm. on its life and manners, on its history and traditions, its hopes and dreams, its tangle of industries, its wealth of resources, its power and color and endless beauties. Preach. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we got even more car trip crazy with the proliferation of interstates following the 1956 Highway Act, but uh, you know that came with its own problems too. Yeah, a lot of traffic on I-64 <laughs> and I-95 around here. Um, what do you mean exactly, though? Uh, well, on one hand, the American emphasis on car travel is synonymous with freedom and individuality, and the availability of routes for long and short trips made for pretty easy propaganda during the Cold War of the 20th century. To an American populace who saw the Soviet Union as unfree and restricted in terms of mobility, car tourism seemed like one of the most American things you could do. Hmm. But then again, on the other hand, the building of all of these new multi-lane highways, often through major metropolitan centers, meant that planners had to choose what parts of the city to bulldoze and where those off-ramps would lead to. Oh, that's interesting. Global politics, in a sense, affected the travel and tourism and uh, in some ways reinforced some American values. Mm -hmm. um, well, before our conversation, I was uh, reading some source material, and I, I read that this transformed the the interstate transformed the older state and national highways mm -hmm. and routes like route 66 sure. the interstate soon bypassed towns populated with small businesses the proverbial mom and pop owned gas stations and diners and motels which has is depicted in the pixar movie cars <laughs> for example um Instead, the interstate traffic kind of showcased the big corporate chains like Exxon and the Golden Arches of McDonald's mm -hmm. and Holiday Inn. In fact, in what I was reading, I learned that the owner of Holiday Inn actually scouted locations in the 1950s and built them at the outskirts of cities, conveniently on the right side of the interstate mm -hmm. highway, just as the family station wagon, you know, full, crammed full of rambunctious kids and desperate parents <laughs> are pulling into a city. So summer family road trips, in a sense, helped transform the look of America, at least during the 1950s and 60s and 70s. Oh, absolutely. And I, I frankly have always found it a little ironic that at the same time we were celebrating the car's ability to take us to unique and special places, we were 
also creating this network of, of sameness, right? Mm. Increasingly, a, a pit stop in Poughkeepsie looks like a pit stop in Phoenix, <laughs> which certainly has both benefits and drawbacks. But there were other transformations going on, too. For instance, when the bulldozers and builders came to these urban centers, most of the time what ended up getting destroyed were thriving black and non-white neighborhoods and businesses, while exits and entrances were built right alongside white commercial centers in order to entice passing tourists and travelers. Poor and non-white Americans often found themselves literally cut off from their own communities, which were now bisected by lanes of fast-moving traffic. Mm. Now, that's not to say that black Americans didn't participate in road trips. They absolutely did. But they were often limited in where they could go and what they could do and where they could even stay due to Jim Crow segregation. Right. That's the reasoning behind the titled Negro Motorist Green Books, or simply the Green Book, that became an absolutely necessity for uh, black car travelers between the 30s and, and 1960s. I mean, these books, which were themselves a collection of knowledge passed along by other black drivers, really pointed to safe or, or friendly restaurants, hotels, and, and even tourist attractions. Mm -hmm. Well, Matt, before we go, I, I want to ask really one more fundamental question. And uh, I don't know if you can answer this, but what, <laughs> what can history tell us about why? Why do we do this? Why, what are we hoping to get out of tourism, I mean, beyond simply an escape? Well, I mean, that's the big question, isn't it, right? What makes a vacation so uniquely special? Some theorists have suggested that the draw of trips like these is that it allows us to leave our comfort zones and take part in something that we know is temporary. It allows us to relax, have fun, and, and act in ways that we might not otherwise do. I mean, it is really sort of literally the idea behind the slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. <laughs> Frankly, though, I, I think it's a little bit bigger than that. Tourism can also be used to reinforce narratives about ourselves and our nation, going back to the New Salem example. Mm -hmm. uh, for another example, in the years following World War II, hundreds and of thousands of American tourists visited war-torn Europe and, in a sense, sold the prosperous American way of life to France while the French were in the midst of rebuilding. But then the French also saw that American tourism as an opportunity to reestablish the draw of Parisian and French culture and to reconstruct their sort of global status and power after the war. Mm. On top of that, tourism can be deeply personal, too. I mean, we find ourselves often going to places that offer the opportunity to grapple with difficult histories and difficult topics. Uh, to return to, you know, talking locally, we've got battlefields, slavery plantations, sites of settler colonialism. These are all over Virginia. When we go to these places, we can confront some pretty serious stuff. But that's also what makes these places and the idea of tourism in general, right, so great. You can get what you want out of it. Maybe that's a chance to meet new people and new ideas. Maybe it's an opportunity to connect with history and place yourself in a much bigger narrative. Or maybe it's just a great opportunity to get out of the house. Well, Matt, I, I think the big question is a good place to conclude our tour of this topic. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Of course, there's more we could have discussed, such as the airline industry, the concert season, the current culture war fights with Disney in Florida, study abroad programs, and even SpaceX tourism. But for now, what about you? Will you take a vacation and travel somewhere? If you do, I hope this episode enhances your time as you hike the trails, raise the sails, and ride the rails this summer. Speaking of, past as prologue is going on a brief summer vacation but fear not, we will be back, refreshed, 
with a brand new episode in August when we'll once again use yesterday to help make sense of today. In the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast and consider adding a rating. The Past is Prologue podcast is produced at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia. When he isn't painting the world's largest ball of paint, Professor Matthew Harshman teaches history at Christopher Newport. The podcast is made possible by generous support from the Department of History, the College of Arts and Humanities and Dean Jana Adamitis, the Ferguson Center for the Arts and Bruce Bronstein, the Media Center Studio at the Tribble Library, and thanks also to researcher Catherine Allen, sound engineer Ketch Kelly, content specialist Emily Dugan, and archivist Matt Shelley. Our theme music is Care of Coma Media. We welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions. Email us at pastpodcast at cnu.edu. Until next time, safe travels, wear your sunscreen, and thank you for listening. I'm Andrew Falk.